If you turn back to page 1177 to our last little series from Ephesians, as I was uh, doing my final preparation for today, I was made conscious of two things that should make us concentrate our minds rather seriously today. One, of course, is the national and international thing, which is way beyond us. We don't understand, at least I don't. Uh, but the sense of doom and gloom is around, and the fear on every side. And therefore, there is, this is a moment which can be turned by Satan to his advantage, causing panic, and it can be turned by God to his advantage, reminding people of where alone is our real security. That's one context. The other context, the more immediate one, the tragic accident and death of uh, David Hopkinson, uh, whose family have been part of this church during my ministry here and uh, on to today. And we're all aware of that. We, David had come back to a living faith in the Lord and is with Christ, which is better. But the great sense of, of, of need. And I believe, again, uh, Satan could use this opportunity, but certainly not in the Hopkinson family. They're uh, coming through wonderfully well and need our uh, continuing prayers, of course. But God can use it to speak to us and to speak through us to a world of need. How easy it is to think it's a terrible, tragic accident. Where is God in all this? And the sovereignty of God is something desperately important. And the assurance of the message and hope of the gospel. And I believe we are, represent two groups of people here this morning. And I said the same at 9.15. Uh, two groups of people. There are those of us who have not yet truly committed to Christ. And a reminder of David's death is a reminder that uh, death can be round the corner any time. A young man, 20, doing tree climbing, tree chopping, and to his death. Um, it is a reminder to us, are we ready for that day? You see, uh, Satan would, would like to stop it. You know, one of, one of the screw tape letters kind of stories, only apocryphal of course, but it's got a real message into it, of the demons going to the archdemon. The archdemon wanted, would give a prize to the one who could get a message to stop the world believing. Oh, one said, number one said, I'll tell them there's no God. No, said the archdemon, that won't work. There's too much evidence. Oh, the second said, I'll tell them there's no hope. Oh, no, that won't work either. Because there's, uh, uh, the resurrection so obviously true, the story's so obvious. No, that won't work. The third one says, I'll say, there's no hurry. You get the prize. There's no hurry. For there are many people, oh yes, I believe there's a God. Oh yes, I'll do something about it. One day, one of these days, I will think about it. We are not in charge of one of these days. And it may be God wants to say something to us today about our own stand for the gospel. But for most of us, we are Christians, of course we are, and that day would find us ready. But it's a challenge to us in this kind of climate in which we live in our nation and in our community here to stand up for the truth. You may have noticed the word stand comes four times in the passage we've just read, and I hope that thing will come through as we look at this passage. I know that Paul and Sue would want me to preach as we're preaching, to take the passage as we want to take it, because they're great believers and are strengthened by the word of God. So we turn to this passage in the light of these truths. Remember, it's being written by a man who calls himself, verse 20, an ambassador in chains. Not some person preparing a sermon in peace and comfort. He's in prison. He knows what it costs to be a Christian. He's got a right to speak. One of the most lovely commentaries on Ephesians, a little one, written by Watchman Nee, who spent many, many years in a Chinese prison. Watchman Nee writes a little commentary called Sit, Walk, Stand. It's only a little book, but it's a, it's a lovely book. 
The sit is the first three chapters of Ephesians. All the glorious inheritance of Christians, what we can enjoy together. That's wonderful. Chapters 4 and 5, walk in the light of what we enjoy. Walk worthily, walk in light, walk in wisdom, filled with the Spirit. And we've done that series and we've seen it's got to work out in the home and in the place of work, as we saw in our study last week. And then comes a stand, this last little bit in chapter 6. And it may well be significant that... uh, that the call to battle comes after the challenge to live worthily in the church, in the home, at work. That's where often the battleground is. Those who remember their old prayer book will remember the lovely prayer in the prayer book called The Prayer for the State of Christ's Church Militant Here in Earth. Lovely, lovely prayer. And the Christ Church Militant is what we're all meant to be. It's there in the prayer book as the opposite to the church triumphant in heaven. And David Hopkins has moved from the church militant to the church triumphant. But for all of us who are Christians, we ought to be militant about our Christianity. I remember a, a lady had wanted a baptism for her son, and she said, I do not want all those words in the baptism service about being Christ's faithful soldier and servant and fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil. I'm a pacifist. I don't want anything about fighting. I said, well, I respect your pacifism. You may well be a pacifist. That's your choice. I'm not, but I can respect that. But your child will have no choice whatsoever. If he wants to grow up as a Christian, there will be a battle. This is no option. There is spiritual warfare. There always has been. Now, that's always true. Spiritually, I think I'm fairly militant. In other ways, I'm, I'm not the right man to do this chapter because I never was in the forces. I was drummed out of the boys' brigade after three weeks. A sad thought. It wasn't a very major issue, but I, I was drummed out of the, the boys' brigade after three weeks. And I, as, as a boy at school, I only fought once. Apparently my honour was at stake, and I had to fight. And the, the crowds gathered in the, in the park near the school, and, and I fought my one fight. And apparently I won. The other, the other hat, lad collapsed in tears, and I collapsed in tears with him. And that was the end of my fighting. I've never done it since. So I'm not a militant man like that. But I do think I am a militant man spiritually because what else can you be when we've got a battle against Satan? You see, there are lots of Christians who love to remind us the Bible talks about beating your uh, swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. It comes in Isaiah, it comes in Micah. Isn't it lovely? Yes. Provided you're honest and remind yourself that in Joel chapter 3 it says the opposite. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, which we often sing about in one of our choruses. You see, there is a battle on, and there is a need for Christians to be ready to stand up and be counted. There is a fight. For you see, Satan has not given up. In this letter to the Ephesians, Paul has already twice mentioned Satan. Just flick back. Chapter 2, verse 2. That once you were in Satan's grip, you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He is at work. He will always be at work. Or in chapter 4, verse 27, Paul has reminded them that they must not give the devil a foothold. Live the Christian life consistently so you won't give the devil a chance to get in. And how ready he is to get in. That's why I think, if you look at that, back to our passage, it begins with this word, finally. Chapter 6, verse 10. It's not Paul saying, this is my last word, I'm about to sign off. After all, in Philippians, he says, finally, halfway through the letter, exactly. No, the word finally literally means 
for the rest of time. And he's actually saying to these Christians, you will always need to be strong in the Lord until that day of glory, until the Lord does call you home. We just sang about that. Till he returns or calls me home. Well, that day will come. But until that day, there always will be a battle. So we need to be strong in the Lord. Thank God. Oh, let's keep the balance. Yes, there's always a battle. Always, always. But Jesus said in John 16, 33, In the world you have tribulation. The word means pressure. We know a lot about that. In me you have peace. Be of good cheer. I've won. We're on the winning side. But nonetheless, there's always a battle. And in that battle, there are three secrets which I have for you this morning. Know your enemy. Know your weapons. Know yourself. Know your enemy. That's verses 10 to 12. He's a personal foe. And verse 12 reminds us uh, that the kind of person he is. Not, not to flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers, Forces of evil in the heavenly realms. No, that doesn't mean, the old version said high places. It doesn't mean uh, people in leadership in church and state, though it may well be through those that the devil gets in. It's talking about the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms and the spiritual forces were often in the church. How does a church suddenly decline? Is it because of opposition outside? No, never. It's always due to Tragedy inside. There are many parts of the world where the pressure from outside is huge and the church continues. It continues to stand in some places to thrive. But it's when things go wrong inside, when high places have lost the message, indeed have succumbed to the influence of the evil one, that trouble begins. How did the seven churches in Asia die? The churches to which the book of the Revelation sent letters? Did the Muslim hordes come in and kill them? No. They died from within and the Muslim hordes just gave them decent burial. What happened to the Reformation when the gospel came through? Well, who were the, who were the people opponents? Who put them on the scaffold? Well, not some wicked people from outside, but church leaders. And it was Jesus who said, Beware of false prophets who dress up in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The devil is never more dangerous than when he works within the establishment. But he is a personal foe. He is Satan. He is the prince of this world. He's real. I still meet people who don't actually believe in Satan. May I tell you, do you disagree with Jesus if you don't believe in Satan? He speaks about him quite often. And you may remember that dramatic moment when for 40 days in the wilderness, before his ministry began, he was tempted. I've seen two paintings of Jesus in the wilderness. One shows Jesus with a kind of peculiar figure on his shoulder trying to tempt him to do wrong. No, I don't think it was like that. The other painting shows uh, Jesus alone with his thoughts. That's it. The devil working within trying to say to Jesus, what was the temptation all about? The temptation was all about not going the way of the cross, trying to find popularity other ways, exercising power wrongly. The devil is very clever. Oh, and how did Matthew and Luke, who wrote the story, know about the wilderness? They weren't there. Our Lord was alone. So he must have told them. And he told them because he wanted them to know that they would be fighting a personal foe. And he's also a powerful foe. The words in verse 12 are full of power, aren't they? 
the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. This is powerful stuff. Now, to whom was this letter going? Ephesus. What do we know happened in Ephesus? Well, two things. On the one hand, there was in Ephesus the great temple of Diana of the Ephesians, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, but a monument, of course, to paganism. It was a meteorite that fell from the sky. It looked like a multi-breasted female, and it, became all, it led to all kinds of immoral worship. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. It was utter paganism. But it was bringing money. That was a force of evil in the heart of Ephesus. And the other... If you read Acts 18 and 19, the story of Ephesus, it reminds you that when God worked in Ephesus through the preaching of the gospel, they brought out their magic arts, they burnt them. If Ephesus was famous for what they called the Ephesian letters, the abracadabra of the ancient world. It was a heart of magic. And so when they became Christians, magic was gone. And we have Halloween coming up on the horizon. Happily, there's a light party coming on in food. We preserve for light to darkness. But all this goes around still. And in Ephesus, there was that kind of power through magic, through paganism. Ah, but much more. Look again at verse 11 of our passage. Take, put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The actual word is methods. I was naughty, I was about to, well, I'm going to say it now, having said I was going to say it, so I better say it now. I have a little line which says, Satan was the original Methodist. That's an awful line, isn't it? Taken out, of course, it, you, you, really, that sounds awful. My Methodist friends, it, nothing to do with you, you're a lovely lot. But he, he was a Methodist, he was a man of methods. The word actually says, methods. And he was very clever. He was a great schemer. He loved to scheme. And uh, what Paul could say is, we must take our stand against it. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes, wiles, methods. He would say in 2 Corinthians 11 that he sometimes comes like an angel of light. This is all the devil's weapons. Ah, but sometimes 1 Peter 5.8, Satan comes like a roaring lion. Have you not known moments when temptation came a bit like that? Suddenly, Tempted, it might be to do with sex, it might be to do with money. But the devil works subtly in different ways. But can I suggest to you the one way he is most dangerous, most powerful? That is when he wants us to doubt the authority of God's word. That's his best weapon. Okay, let me take you back. Garden of Eden. Supposing when sin happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in the story, supposing there had been somebody from outer space, from some planet, and they'd been sent to planet Earth to see what was going on in the Garden of Eden, this dramatic moment, sin entered the world, send the reporter, let's get headline news. What did happen? A woman took fruit and shared it with her husband. Doesn't sound terribly wicked. After all, yes, okay, I mean, she'd been told not to, but you can think of a lot more wicked things than that. Why was it so wicked? Ah, the subtlety is here. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil, Satan, the serpent, is there then, said to the woman, listen, did God really say? The four most chilling words in Satan's armory. Did God really say? Don't believe him. Don't believe him. You won't die. 
Well, you see, it's ever since then, that's the devil's best weapon. When it comes to matters of how you live, sexuality, and matters of what you believe, doctrinally, well, have you got to take the Bible seriously? Did God really say that? Well, yes, he did. And if we want the world to be a different world, then we've got to listen to what God has got to say. If we want somehow to solve the problems, know the G7 people we need to pray for, people finance institutions we need to pray for, but ultimately, it's not in their hands. And suddenly they're beginning to realise it. Remember once, I don't often speak to members of parliament, but some years ago, speaking to one, and he said, well, you know, Philip, we sit in the House of Commons and we, we think we're pulling strings, but there's nothing happening at the other end. We haven't got the power anymore. And I think they're true in a way he didn't know. He wasn't thinking this. We believe that there, there are forces, spiritual forces, the devil saying, did God really say, throw God's ways overboard, and God's saying, thank God that Paul and Sue Hopkinson in their hour of t- testimony, their testing, have got a great testimony. They're aware that God says that in Christ there is hope, there is eternal life, there is security and peace, and they're finding it. But he's a powerful foe. He's a personal foe. But he's a vulnerable foe. He has actually been defeated. Tonight, Paul will be preaching Colossians, written from the same place, by the same pen, the same man. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes that Jesus, at the cross, disarmed the principles, the powers and authorities, these powers, triumphing over them in the cross. That is, at the cross, the devil was finally defeated. He thought he had got Christ where he wanted him. He thought he'd got God on a scaffold. Well, he had, but in a way that never occurred to him, that when he did his worst, God did his best. Oh, I'm so thankful that the message we have is a message that comes through suffering into glory. He is a vulnerable foe. And that's why you see verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. While you've got your Bibles open, just flick back to chapter 1, verse 19. And I want to suggest to you that the power of the Lord is wonderfully greater than any power of the evil one, however he may work. Just add up in your mind how often the word for power comes in chapter 1, verse 19. His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ. It's, it's full of words that speak of power, greatness, authority. The power that's with us is greater than the power that is with the enemy. He is defeated. God has the last word. Oh, he allows Satan, he allows Satan to do his job, but we are called to be, in verse 10, literally strengthened in the Lord. It's a command, but it offers with the command the answer. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So how can we be strong in the Lord? Know your enemy now. Know your weapons. Three of them. Stand up. Dress up. Look up. That's straightforward. Verses 13 to 18. Uh, If you read commentaries, they say, well, Paul was there and he had a a soldier with him and probably he was looking at this soldier with all his armour on and he was sort of working out what it really meant. Mm, I'm not so sure. Did they all wear, wear all their armour when they were looking after prisoners? I doubt it. He probably had his, had his civvies on. I've no idea. I think it was much more likely that Paul remembered the passage that we read in Isaiah 59. 
which talks about these things, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. And he worked out, as he looked at this soldier, if you like, we've got greater weapons. Stand up. That word comes four times. And in one sense, only we can do it. God can do everything for us. God can strengthen us. But only we can stand up. He won't make you stand. And by nature, many of us are terribly timid people. Yes, we believe individually. We have this strange British philosophy. You don't talk about religion and politics. You can leave the politics alive. But I don't talk about religion. The most important thing in life, I don't talk about what sort of life do you live? No, it's just to do with me and my God. Where in the Bible do you get the idea that Christianity is just between me and my God? He's between us and our God and a pagan, unbelieving world and Satan doing his best. And he loves Christians who are what we call the silent majority, who are of no use whatsoever. And it's time we moved out of that. There's a verse in chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul talks about the, the people who don't stand up. But chapter 4, verse 14, don't any longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by their cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful methods, scheming wiles. So stand up. Uh, not literally, but do stand up. Secondly, dress up. There are six weapons. Uh, some years ago when I was doing a lot of student ministry up and down the country, everybody wanted to talk about spiritual warfare. There are, there are sort of seasons in the student world, and in those it was always spiritual warfare. I remember going to one university, East Anglia, and they did one different weapon each week, uh, and it didn't sort of work because we all sort of, we, 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 we overlap terribly. I don't think you're meant to do that, but I think we are meant to look at these weapons and see a wonderful Put on the whole armour of God. If we want to win through, these are the weapons. Simply, one, belt of truth. Well, that means uh, it's the undergarment that makes sure you're all right. I was saying at 9.15, at 9.15 I can dress up as I like in the pulpit because my wife's not there, but now my wife's here, I've got to be careful, I make sure everything's all right and I'm tidy because she's checking on me from the fifth pew back uh, and will signal if things go wrong. The great thing about clergy, we have wives. There was one occasion I was preaching and I got my robes on and I got them all, all over the place. Uh, days of wearing robes. And she was signaling like mad. And I know I, and I sort of smiled at her. And this, somehow my arm hadn't got through the surplus hole and it was sort of down here. And I was trying to sing. I had to bring my arm down underneath the cassock to try to sing. And I, I suddenly I, I got to get undressed and dressed in, in front of the congregation. It was, that was great fun. Uh, but the belt of truth is that which holds it together. That which makes everything stick together. And what is that? What is the belt? Truth. Do you see it? Having your, the belt of truth buckled around your waist. It means the truth. The truth of the gospel. It also means integrity. Where a person stands with all our imperfections by the truth, the devil is thwarted. There's integrity. He can't get at you. Secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. That is, we are right with God through what Jesus has done and therefore we are secure. Will you please notice, it's only a breastplate. If you turn around and run away, he'll get you and you deserve it. There's no armour for the back. And when Christians start running, we give the devil every opportunity to shoot us down. When the church turns its back on the truth, it gets shot down and deserves to do so. 
The breastplate is that which is being right with God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And thirdly, the boots. The boots of the gospel of peace. You see, we're still at it. Even in the midst of the battle, we're on the offensive. Please, the one way to defeat Satan is not to let him have the initiative to go on preaching the gospel. Fatal in a church when they're so busy looking after internal things that they cease to go out with the good news of the gospel to a, a dying world. Sad when Christians are so busy worrying about themselves they forget to get put on the boots. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach. Good tidings, we sang about it in a song a moment ago. Fourthly, the shield of faith. Dealing with the fiery darts of the evil one. That is, my trust in the Lord Jesus means that when the devil attacks me and says, Philip Hacking, you're not fit to stand in a pulpit and preach, and he's right, I can say to him, you're right, but God has graciously forgiven me and will strengthen me, so I shall go on preaching. So there. You see, that's faith. That is righteousness when I'm, when I'm breastplate of righteousness, when it's in its place, I'm fine. And when I've got the shield of faith, I can extinguish these fiery darts of accusation. But to me, the one that is most often forgotten is the helmet. Fifthly, the helmet of salvation. Well, that, as you know, covers your head. And it covers your head because it's there that you think. It's there that you mind things. And the people who are unable to stand are the people who stop thinking about the truths of God. They stop reading the Bible. They stop talking about the things of God. The mind is so obsessed so at the moment in time. The things of the world that are getting on top of me. I'm so worried about the security, my pension and this, that and the other. But let me put my mind on the truth of salvation. That I'm saved because of the death of Christ. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I am saved from the power of sin in my life now. This is what salvation is all about. When I think that through, then my head is kept safe. The devil would like to put other thoughts there, other philosophies there. Get behind me, Satan. When somebody dies at the age of 20 suddenly, don't you say, and I say it too, it's sad, think what might have been. It's a two-edged sword, that phrase, you know, to think what might have been. You see, we have no idea to know what's going on in the world of tomorrow from which David will now be saved. Oh yes, we understand and we, we weep with the parents. But don't you see that there's a very real sense in which when I am in Christ, my mind tells me that whatever my hour of departure, I'm safe in him. My mind assures me that salvation is sure and secure. Can you say that of yourself? And finally, the sword of the Spirit. Here's the only offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is, the Spirit inspired the Scripture, and the Spirit will make the Scripture work. And so we go out with a fight, with a, a weapon to use. Please, can I suggest to you that two things. I hope you don't think it's so wrong that we're speaking about David's death and weaving a sermon partly around it. I'm sure this is what Paul and Sue would want us to do. There's a kind of almost a, a silence. People, we mustn't talk about these things. I, I just want people to know that here's a young lad who, sad though it may seem to be, has gone with Christ. Isn't this what it's all about? Don't be ashamed to use the sword. 
And when it comes to the, to the world and the need in which we, the situation in which we are, are Christians able to say anything different from the world? Can I tell the world that my security is in heaven? Dare I be thought of as being pious? Ruth Kelly, I say, I don't know anything about her face. She's a Roman Catholic lady. But Ruth Kelly said that it's a hard work. It's a hard world to be a politician and a Christian. In the House of Commons, if you're a Christian, if you're a person of faith, you are insulted, you are taunted, you are not treated as being significant. Faith is not kosher anymore. And I believe as Christians we've got to be ready for the world to think we are insignificant, we are different, we dare. The sword of the Spirit which alone can bring life out of death. So, stand up, dress up. Thirdly, look up. Prayer in verse 18 is not just another weapon, it's prayer which affects all the weapons. And if we are people of prayer, then we have a mighty weapon. A few weeks ago, Dave Todd preached a very powerful sermon on David and Goliath. I preached lots of sermons on David and Goliath, and that was a, I got a new insight. I told Dave that. It was a new insight. Get Dave Todd's, get the CD of Dave Todd on David and Goliath. And he made it quite clear, it points on to Christ. It was a very, a very good sermon. But in that story of David and Goliath, which I have preached on, I would point out that when David went to fight Goliath, he beat Goliath, not because he was a little man and, and Goliath is a big man. The story of the little man against the big. No, no, no. Small isn't always beautiful. No, he won because he, the weapons he had, he knew how to use. He wouldn't wear Saul's armour. He couldn't even walk in it. He dismissed Saul's armour and he went with the weapons he knew, the stone. Now, don't allegorise the stone. They used to in the old days, you know. Uh, the first stone was faith, it was, was prayer, and the second stone was Bible study, and the third stone was worship, and the fourth stone was communion. No, no, no. They were just stones. Stones are stones are, are stones. But because he went in the name of the Lord and he had spiritual power, Goliath came down. And because we have in prayer a weapon that brings the enemy down, let's use it. Have you thought of going to the church prayer meeting? We meet once a month. You thought of going to, in your group, praying together? Terribly important, isn't it? Look at the all in verse 18. How often it comes, all. All occasions, all kinds of prayer, always, all the saints. What a wonderful, exciting vision that is. And we can all be involved in that. Regularity, flexibility, perseverance, wide vision. Now my last point very briefly. Know yourself. Know your weapons, know your enemy, know yourself. Your place and his grace. You see, what does, what does Paul pray for? Ask them to pray for. He's not too big to ask for prayer. Paul, the great preacher, needed to pray. What does he ask him to pray for? If I'd been where Paul was, I think I'd have said, please pray for me that I might soon be released. No. Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So where he was, it wasn't the situation he's chosen. He wanted to be a witness. I know Paul and Sue would want to be a witness. They wouldn't choose this situation. Of course not. Who would? But that somehow they might make it known whom they believe and the sovereignty of their God. And if you can't cope with a big place, look at Tychicus verse 21. I love Tychicus. He was always going here, there and everywhere on Paul's bidding and see his ministry at the end of verse 22 that he may encourage you. What if that's your place? 
A lot of people these days need encouragement. There's a lot of gloom around. A lot of fear around. How about an encouragement? People in churches need encouragement. Christian leaders need encouragement. And leaders need to encourage ordinary Christians. We can all be tickicuses. Your place. And finally, his grace. I love all the words in verse 23 and 24. Peace, love, faith, grace. The undeserved mercy of God. And see how it finishes. Who, all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That's a beautiful, unique adjective. Undying love. You see, what matters to me is that his love is undying. And that's why I can speak to people in hours of need and bereavement and say, I can't explain to you why your child has died. Of course I can't. But I can point you back to the cross where you know God loves you. And so long as you hold on to those things that never change, we can live with the things we don't understand by God's grace. And if his love is undying, and it is, the challenge is, what about my love for him? Is that undying? Does it need resurrecting? Does it need renewing? Those who know me will know um, I came to Christ as a teenager partly through reading the story of C.T. Studd, an England cricketer who became a missionary. And that was a change in my life as a great cricket lover. And so everything's followed from then. But C.T. Studd wrote a little monograph called The Chocolate Soldier. I was trying to find my copy. I had one somewhere. It's gone. The Chocolate Soldier. C.T. Studd was a, a, a very straight-speaking character. And the point of the chocolate soldier, you can probably guess. Lots of people are wonderfully militant when they're with Christians, singing Christian hymns. Everybody else agrees with them. Well, we're fine. But when we get out there, in the heat of the battle, we melt. We just melt. There's nothing there. And C.T. Studd says some trenchant words about the chocolate soldiers of his day. I believe it's right that I should... I mean, given the challenge of preaching today, just ask you, are you ready really to stand up and be counted as a Christian in these days? Are you willing to follow the example of those who've risked all for Christ? We need those kind of Christians desperately. In a minute we're going to sing, and we're going to sing, as you've probably spotted already, as you like me, I always look at the hymns before I look at anything else and notice, see if, I'm, if I like them all. And... Uh, there's the, we're going to sing Stand Up for Jesus. What, what else could you sing but Stand Up for Jesus after that passage? I've just got one little complaint to Mr. George Duffield who wrote this a long time ago. What about the last verse? Do you think the last verse is right? Stand up for Jesus, the fight will not be long. Well, in a sense, the fight's going to go on for the rest of my life. Seems long. What he's trying to say, which is true, that compared with the wonder of eternity, it's not long. That's the long bit. This is the short bit. But it is, finally, it is for the rest of our life. I'm actually going to ask you to do something in a minute. I'm going to ask you and me, in a minute, to stand, literally, and to be quiet, just for a minute or two. And in that moment of quietness, well, if you like, you can pray for Paul and Sue and for them and for a world. But most of all, I want that, two, that minute's silence to be me, rededicating my life to stand for Christ, to dare to be a Christian, and perhaps for somebody even to stand up for the first time and give my life to him, because I know that I need to do it just now. And after we stood for a minute, we'll sing.
So will you please stand?